Good morning, church family. Can I just say that I love you guys? As we, Lizzie and I, come to kind of the close of our ministry here, I, I actually uh, asked Jason a few weeks back and said, hey, could I, uh, could I get up and preach one last time before we go? Thinking that that would not be a problem, and I would be just fine this morning, and we would just power through this lesson, and everything would come up roses until I got here this morning. And talked to a few of you who aren't going to be here last week, and a couple of you, uh, you know, gave us thank you cards and goodbye cards, and, and now I am an emotional train wreck. So this lesson is not going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be, and this may be the hardest lesson that I've ever had to give, not necessarily because of the subject matter, but just because of uh, the emotional whirlwind that I have been on this morning. So I know Jason is ready. If I can't make it through this, he's going to... He's going to either come up and hold my hand and help me get through it, or he's just going to come up and take over one of the two. So either way, things may get a little weird this morning. Um, but all joking aside, I, I'm really excited to be able to, to share a message with you this morning. And this morning, we're going to be talking and continuing through this, this series that Jason has been doing through the book of John. And as luck would have it, I get one of my favorite lessons, which is Jesus cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. Now, just to remind you and to refresh your memory, last week you talked about the wedding feast and the miracle that Jesus performed there when he turned water into wine. And I want to keep that fresh in your mind because we're going to touch on that a little bit later on here this morning in this lesson as we look at kind of that next step. So we're going to pick up this morning in John chapter 2 in verse 13. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles or your Bible apps or whatever you're using this morning to follow along because I do want you to follow along. Now, I wanted to bring something to your attention, and many of you may already know this, and this might be new information from some of you, but I do think it's interesting where John places this story in his gospel. He places it right up front. Now, if you're familiar with the other synoptic gospels, Mark, Luke, and John place this story way at the end of their gospels, almost as a climax to the end of Jesus' life. And I always thought that was very interesting that the placement, and for those of you, I know we have some real estate folks in the crowd, location, location, location is everything, right? And John places this right up front. Now, if we think about why John wrote his gospel, John wrote his gospel to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. So there's some speculation as to why he placed this right up front. It may be from a theological perspective, because he wanted to go ahead and establish the authority of Jesus right up front, because that's part of this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, is Jesus saying, I am the Son of God. Or maybe... There were two cleansings. That's one of, the, one of the theories, is that there were two cleansings of the temples. Jesus actually did this twice, which is why it's up front in John's and at the end of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, I don't know if that is true or not, but another theory is that Jesus attended many of these festivals, and since this is the only one recorded, maybe John just wanted to kind of get this out of the way right up front. Now, I don't know what the answer to that question is, and I can't sit here and tell you without any shadow of a doubt, what the reason is that John placed this up front. But I think as we study the Bible and as we become uh, biblical scholars and as we look into these things, these are the things we have to think about. As we read through this story today, I want you to think about why did John place this at the beginning of his gospel and not at the end like the other gospel writers did? 
It's just another thing for us to think about as we start to unpack this story. So I want to pick up in John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar at all with the map, that sounds a little strange at first thought. And this is what I mean by really digging into the scriptures and digging into the Bible, is he says that he went from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And as you can see, Capernaum is kind of at the top near the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem is going to be south of there. So to us, we think, well, he actually went down, right? Because we say down south and we say up north. But what he's actually talking about is elevation. See, Jerusalem was built on a hill. Jerusalem was high. So when he says he went up to Jerusalem, that doesn't mean he went north because he actually traveled south. It just means that they went up into the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and other and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, in case you're not familiar, these things in and of themselves would have been fairly common. Because as you were traveling to Jerusalem to make your sacrifice, you got to put yourself in the time and the place. you got to think about the context. This would not have been as easy as going out and jumping in your nice air-conditioned vehicle with all of the things that you would need to go to worship and driving to Jerusalem. It wouldn't have been that simple. See, they would have been traveling for many days by foot to get to the temple for Passover. And it's thought that hundreds of thousands of people would have flooded the city of Jerusalem and they would have come from all points all around. So on the surface, these things seem fairly obvious to us because people would have need to buy cattle to use for their sacrifices. They would need to exchange monies because there was a temple tax that had to be paid in the local currency. Just like if you were to travel to a foreign land, you may need to exchange your money when you get there so that you would have the currency of the places that you are. So in and of itself, this, this wouldn't have been all that crazy except for the location. See, the problem is these money changers were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Now, there were many different pieces and different parts to the temple. There were the inner portions, the Holy of Holies, things like that. And then there were the outer portions. There was the court for the Jews. There was the court for the women. And then there was the court for the Gentiles. And this is part of the problem, is that they had set up these tables. They had set up these exchanges. They were doing business. They had basically set up a flea market in the court of the Gentiles. So not only were they making a mockery out of the temple, not only were they making a mockery out of the place where God's Spirit dwelt, but they were also preventing the Gentiles from worshiping in the right manner. Now we know, right, from, the, from what we know about the Bible, that the Gentiles have always kind of been the second-class citizens. And even when you look at their court, their court was the farthest one away from the inner portions of the temple. But now, not only that, but now they have a flea market going on. And this would have been loud, and this would have been chaotic, because you would have had the money changers yelling out their different currency exchanges. You would have had the mooing of the cattle. You would have had the, the bleeding of the sheep. Things like that would have been going on. So this would have been loud. It would have been chaotic. And it would have been a little... 
crazy. Now, here's an interesting thing to think about. Jesus, being a devout Jew, would have probably made this trip more than just this one time. He probably his whole life had been making this journey to Jerusalem. But see, now Jesus has embarked on his ministry. Now Jesus is about his father's business. Now it was time for Jesus to step in and do something. But that begs the question, why hadn't anybody else already done something about this? Why had the high priest not put a stop to this? Why hadn't the other Jewish leaders put a stop to this? Because it had become commonplace. They had just kind of gotten used to it. They'd gotten used to the fact that when they get to the temple, they're going to hear these sounds, and they're going to have these smells, and they're going to have this chaos going on, and people had kind of started to ignore it. Isn't it funny how the things that we see over and over again just become commonplace? And we forget that it's not right. I can remember when I was a kid. When I was a kid, if you heard somebody use foul language, everybody would like, whoa, did you hear that? And people would kind of stop and pause and like, I can't believe they just said that. Now I go to McDonald's, I hear eight and nine-year-olds using language that I would never even fathom using myself, and it doesn't phase anybody. We see things on TV that 10 or 20 years ago, we would have said, whoa, 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 you can't put that on TV. And now we just go, eh, that's just what TV is these days. Now I say all of that to say that this, this flea market environment that had taken place in the temple had just kind of become commonplace. But see, now Jesus has embarked on his ministry. Now Jesus can't just let these things slide. He understands that it's not commonplace, and he decides he's got to do something about it. Now, I want you to notice this first part of verse 15. It says, so he made a whip out of cords. Now, let's think about that for just a second, because I've heard this story used to justify anger and to justify violence, and people will say, well, Jesus did it. Jesus got mad and flipped over tables and drove people out with a whip. Jesus sat down and made a whip of cords. Now, that doesn't sound like a rash decision to me, because this is something that would have taken some time. Now, we don't know what he used, but he sat down and he made a whip of cords. Knowing what he was about to do, thinking about what he was about to do, he literally sat down and very methodically made a whip to drive the animals out. This was not a rash thing. This was not like when we get upset because somebody cuts us off in traffic. Not that that ever happens in Southern California. But th this was not a rash anger. This was something that hurt his heart. This was something he knew he had to do. And it wasn't just about anger. As you notice from the, the subject, or the, the title of my lesson this morning, we're talking about cleansing. And the Passover was all about cleansing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a few minutes. But let's read verse 15. It says, he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And again, I, I hear people use this to justify rash anger. I hear this to justify our poor choices and our bad behavior. But that's not what Jesus was doing. Let's move on to verse 16. It says, To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. 
Stop turning my father's house into a market. See, they were making a mockery out of his father's house. And Jesus had to do something about it because he had to do some cleaning. He had to do some cleaning house. Now notice he doesn't kill the animals. He doesn't take away their inventory or their livelihood. He simply says, you're not going to do this in my father's house. So he drove them out. So this would have been a chaotic scene, right? We've gone from the temple courts being a flea market, the temple courts having these money changers and these animals, and all of this was fairly commonplace to a scene of chaos. Can you imagine? And the temple courts would have, been, would have been very full at this time. Again, hundreds of thousands of people would have made this trip into Jerusalem. But can you imagine? Put yourself in this situation. And all of a sudden, Jesus makes a whip and starts driving the animals out. See, Jesus was trying to make a point. They had become complacent. They had become comfortable in what they were doing, and he had to change that. Have you ever been in that situation where maybe you're at the grocery store and all of a sudden somebody starts getting loud, somebody starts yelling, somebody starts causing chaos? What does it do? It makes everybody stop and take notice and wonder what is going on. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted them to realize that what they were doing was not okay and would not be tolerated. Now, again, I want to draw you back to last week when Jason talked about the wedding feast. That was a miracle of conversion, right? Jesus converted water into wine. That was a happy occasion. That was our happy Jesus, right? He, he was there. He was celebrating the wedding. He was an invited guest. And, and, and when things started to go sideways, Jesus stepped in and kind of fixed things. And the party went on and everybody was happy, right? That was our happy Jesus, right? And then this week we have another side of Jesus, and that's the cleansing side. And that's exactly how it works throughout Scripture. We have conversion, and then we have cleansing. You don't know how many people tell me, oh, I, I can't commit my life to Christ because I've got things I've got to clean up in my own life first. No, 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 that's not how it works. See, we give our lives to Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus, and then he helps us clean up our lives. Because I'll tell you what, if we waited till our lives were perfect to commit our lives to Christ, not one of us would be a committed follower of Christ. And I don't say that to be rude, and I don't say that to point fingers, because I'm talking about me too. See, the conversion happens first. In the first half of John chapter 2, we saw conversion, and now we're seeing cleansing. Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's not trying to be violent. He's not trying to be rude. He's trying to clean up his father's house. And we'll talk more about the application for that for ourselves a little bit later on. But see, there's two and more than two sides to Jesus. But see, we like to put Jesus in a box sometimes, right? We, we only want the one part of Jesus. We want the wine Jesus, the wine Jesus that converted water into wine and kept the party going and was loving and happy and everybody has a good time. But see, we also have Jesus of the whip. And sometimes he's got to whip us, right? Sometimes he's got to drive out the sin in our own lives. He's got to help us see the sin in our own lives. See, we can't put Jesus in a box because he's infinitely more knowledgeable and more powerful than we could ever possibly imagine or fathom. 
And see, these, these sides of Jesus go hand in hand. It's sides of the same person. Just like you may be a husband, but you're also a father, and you're also a brother, and you're also a cousin, and an uncle, and a coworker. These different sides of Jesus go hand in hand. See, there was this, there was this, there's this concept, right, about the leavened bread. And some of you have heard about this. It's kind of a Passover tradition, so to speak. But God gave Moses specific instructions regarding the annual celebration of God's deliverance from the slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Removing the yeast has become a symbolic, a symbol of removing the bread and the yeast from the homes. Now, this is something that the, that the Jews practiced, right? The, the, the leaven, right, was, was representative of sin. So when they went through the house and they cleaned all of that out at Passover, they were cleaning out the sin in their lives. They were taking time to reflect on the lives that they're living and they were cleaning that out. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing in the temple. He's cleaning it out. Just like how people were expected to clean out their own homes and their own lives, Jesus is doing the same thing in the temple. He wasn't angry. He wasn't intending to cause chaos. He was intending to cleanse, to clean the temple out. So he was doing exactly what everyone else was doing, just in a different way. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that comes exactly from Psalms chapter 69, verse 9, that reads, For zeal for your house consumes me. See, they're recalling back to the scriptures. Because at this time, right, what they had was the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with the Psalms. And they're remembering, oh, that's right. We read this. We read about this zeal that he would have for his father's house, and it was that zeal for his father's house that caused Jesus to say, I can't take this anymore. I'm not going to allow this to go on anymore. I'm going to clean it out. I'm going to fix it. It was all about the zeal that he had for his father's house. It says the Jews then responded to him, well, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Same old, same old. Prove it. Prove it, Jesus. Prove it. His whole ministry, right? Every time he said something, every time he did something, it was prove it, and then they still didn't believe it. So the Jewish leaders are saying, hey, prove to us that you have the authority to do what you just did. So as Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, just to give a little bit of context, at this point, it is thought that the temple had been under construction for about 46 years. And it still wasn't done. Now, if you, if you saw the picture earlier that I, that I put up of the, the court of the Gentiles, the, the temple was a massive place. It was massive. It was ginormous. The foundation stones alone were, were ginormous. So when he said this, immediately the people were like, wait a minute, three days. You can build a temple in three days. It's taken us 46 years. We're not even done yet. It says they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? How exactly do you think you're going to do that? 
continue verse 21. It says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about himself. He was talking about how the presence of God no longer resides in the temple proper, but it resides within himself. Now, this is an interesting point that I don't want you to miss. People will say that when Jesus did this, he was disbanding organized religion. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. We don't need to go to a house of worship anymore. And some will say this was Jesus doing away with Judaism. But I don't think so. This was simply Jesus saying that through me, you can be in the presence of of my father that you don't have to make that pilgrimage to the temple now interesting interesting side note that you may or may not already know but at the time that this event happened the ark of the covenant was no longer even in the temple the temple was literally empty so hundreds of thousands of people were coming to this place the ark wasn't even there anymore verse 22 says after he was raised from the dead his disciples recalled what he had said they said they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, they're recalling back to the scriptures from the Old Testament. Because that's what they would have known. That's the Bible. They didn't have the Bible that you and I have today with the Old and the New Testament and the Psalms and the Proverbs. They had the Old Testament. And they're recalling back to these things that they had been taught. Now, we can learn something from that. They had to know the Scriptures to recall the Scriptures. If we don't know the Scriptures, how do we recall the Scriptures? followers knew the scripture we as followers need to know the scripture so that when we find ourselves in these same situations we too can say that's that's in the bible i read that somewhere and see that's the cornerstone of our faith and his followers here got it they understood it and they were able to think back you know what I, I, that's in the Bible. I read that somewhere. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days. Verse 23 says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Now John doesn't go into what these signs were. He doesn't go into what exactly happened. But what Jesus has just done in this story is he has established his authority. He's established that he is the Son of God, because who else would have done this? Who else would have been able to go into the temple and flip it on its head? Literally and physically. But Jesus. And many believe that's why that John places this story so early in his gospel, is because Jesus is establishing his authority. And there were signs. And many believed in his name. 
it have been something to see these things that Jesus did during his ministry? It, it still just blows my mind that people got to witness the things that Jesus did and still were like, you know, I'm just not so sure. I'm not so sure he really is who he says he is. He, he, may, be a, he may be a magician. He may be demon-possessed. I'm just, you know, I'm just not buying it. They, they got to see Jesus heal people who couldn't walk. They got to see Jesus heal people that couldn't see. Now, I'm not talking about televangelists where, where the guy comes up on the crutches and they, they knock him down with his forehead and all of a sudden he can walk. Jesus healed people with physical deformities. He raised people from the dead and people still questioned it. sometimes we still question Jesus as well. And we have the Bible. We have the recorded, inspired word that tells us all of the things that Jesus did. But what do we do sometimes when things get tough? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Why is he letting this happen? What's going on? Why isn't Jesus listening to me? They saw the signs and they believed. And we have the signs in the word. We didn't get to see it, but we know that it happened, and we believe it to be true. Verse 24 says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Now, this is an interesting scripture. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about this one. We could probably spend a couple hours, but don't worry, I won't do that. He did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Jesus doesn't want fair weather fans. He doesn't want people that just because they saw him do something cool are like, hey, this dude's okay. Because he knows what's in the heart of men. Verse 25 says, He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. It's a very sobering passage. For he knew. Jesus knows us. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows your deeds. He knows your actions. You can't hide from Jesus. He says he knew. The last verse I want to leave you with comes from Psalms. Chapter 139, verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Have you ever prayed this psalms as your prayer? Have you ever been bold enough to say, Lord, search my heart. Show me what needs to be cleaned up in my own life. Because see, now we are the temple. Our bodies are the temple. The Spirit lives within us, so we've got to clean out the temple just like Jesus did in John chapter 2. Maybe we need to say this prayer. Maybe we need to pray, God, search me. Search my heart. You know me better than I know myself. Show me those areas of my life that I need to clean up. Show me those areas where I've fallen off the way. Show me those areas in my life that have become so commonplace that I don't even see it anymore. Search my heart and clean up my life. And he'll help you do that. He will help you do that, and he's waiting for you to ask. Pray to God today 
to search your heart. In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask the, the elders to come forward, and we're going to have an, an opportunity for you to come forward and talk and receive prayer or whatever the case may be this morning, anything that you may need. And, and, and while we're singing that song of invitation, just talk to God. Ask him to search your heart. And if there's things that we can help you with, we're happy to do that. But you know who's even way more powerful than anybody in this room? Is God. And he can, and he will, and he wants to help you. See, we got to cleanse our temples. we got to cleanse our temples. we got to remove the leaven. It's an ongoing process, just like with your home, right? You don't get to clean your home once, and it's just clean forever. And for those of you with kids like me, 10 minutes later, it's dirty. But, but we're the same way in our relationship to God. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. Yes, baptism is the cleanser. Baptism is what clears the slate, but it doesn't stop there. Baptism isn't the finish line, right? It's a necessary step, but it's not the finish line. So when we're baptized, all those sins are taken away. But you know what? We've got to keep doing that over and over and over again to keep talking to God, to keep asking for God to show you what needs to be cleaned and to help you clean it up to help you break those addictions, to help you break those habits, to help you change the things in your life that need to be changed so that you can be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite Skeeter to come on up. I'm going to invite our elders to come forward. If we can help you, if, you, if you've never been baptized to take that necessary step, to, to have your sins forgiven, to have all those mistakes that you've made wiped away and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptistry is full. I checked it earlier. It's even warm. We can get you baptized today. And you can walk out that door in a right relationship with Christ. Or maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, but you're struggling with some things, and your, your temple needs some cleansing, and you've tried, and you're just not there. We would love to walk alongside you. We would love to partner with you. We would love to help you in any way that we can as we stand together and as we sing. Trust in the chariot. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trust in the work they do. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. By His grace, all the work is through. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sing, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will always prevail. We trust in the name of the Lord our God.